everybody, uh, before I get into episode 91 with Sam Long, I just want to take a minute and acknowledge the reality that we've been living through the last few days. Uh, this episode was recorded about five weeks ago with Sam, way before the COVID-19 uh, issues and obviously before all of the school closings and the cancellation of NSTA and a lot of the other things that come up in this episode. So first off, I hope everybody is safe and I hope everybody is you know, dealing with the issues at their school and as we transition into this unique situation that none of us were prepared for, uh, that you are doing okay because uh, really that's sort of most important. I, I hope all the teachers are doing fine. Uh, the other thing is I recorded this morning with Sam just to check in with him and see how he's doing and what's going on with his school. And we both shared a little bit about our current situation. So at the end of this episode, after the final music, uh, please listen to an 8 to 10 minute conversation between myself and Sam. And I hope you enjoy this conversation that we recorded many weeks ago that still brings up many important issues in education, even if they're not the most pressing ones today. Hello and welcome to Life of the School. Episode 91. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Box for Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I sit down with a fellow science teacher and ask them, How'd they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on? And what are their hopes for the future? In this episode, I sit down with Sam Long. Sam is a high school teacher at Stanley Lake High School in Westminster, Colorado. In addition to his work as a science teacher at Stanley Lake, Sam is a co-founder of the Colorado Transgender Educators Network and co-creator of the site GenderInclusiveBiology.com. Sam also identifies as an aspiring astronaut and was a participant in the 2019 Out Astronaut Contest. Sam writes about his work at sam-long.weebly.com and is on Twitter as at samlong713. Welcome, Sam. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. I just noticed that it's your 91st episode, and I am so happy that there's a science teacher interviewing podcast with 91 episodes yeah yeah it's been uh it's been an adventure i i don't know that there were many uh biology teachers doing this um you know there was a couple of them out there in there but um yeah i'm i am now approaching the end of year four uh, of doing this so uh it's it's been a, it's been a long ride mm. uh, yeah it's been uh there and i was i was saying that this past fall i was really um uh, struggling to get guests. And I was thinking back, I had talked to uh, Paul Anderson as one of my early episodes, like in my first year. And he's like, how long are you going to do this? How many teachers are there? And I was like, ah, there's a million teachers and da, da, da. And then this fall, I re really started struggling, like lining people up because, you know, people are busy and, and, and that sort of thing. And then this spring, it's been great. So, um, you know, you're one of a couple of people who we've never met in real life. I, I literally only know you from social media and posts of things you put up on Twitter or in the Facebook communities and that sort of thing. And um, I, I'm psyched that you were able to join me and, and to talk about, you know, being a science teacher. So thanks for thanks again for joining. I'm excited to be here. All right. We were before I started recording, we were having the, uh, I think, typical uh, teacher talk of snow days and ice days and delays and stuff like that. Um, have you had a rough winter? I know you said you just had a day on uh, on Friday where you had a, a sort of unexpected snow day. But has it has it been a tough winter for you guys? That was the first snow day so far. Pretty oh. unexpected. We had a few late starts. It's been a good year overall. 
second semester has been um, going well uh, yeah. so far, and don't expect any other uh, don't expect any other unexpected things to happen. <laughs> but with uh, me being out for a couple of conferences this spring, I hope that everything goes according to calendar. Yeah, yeah. I had that um, happen the first year I was an AP reader. Um, you know, I lined it all up and I figured out the days and I did all that. And then we got four snow days in March, uh, which, you know, occasionally you get a snow day in March. But we got like two massive back to back storms, like midweek storms that just like Wednesday night, you know, or well, one of them was Wednesday night and like wiped out the end of the week. And the other was like a Tuesday night and wiped out the week. Um, and so it went from, oh, it's no big deal. I'm going to be going to the repeat read and I will just like end my classes a couple of days early. No big deal. Um, and everybody was fine with that too. Suddenly it was like, oh no, you're going to need to get coverage for all those classes. Cause <laughs> we ended up getting out like almost the last, it was the last couple of days of June because of so many snow days at the end. So you had to add on days. Yeah. Yeah. We always do. Apparently we, unless, as long as the snow days happen before April, I think once we get into mm -hmm. April, there's something about our school calendar and something about contract that, or, and I don't know if it's a statewide thing or a district thing. Um, if we were to have snow days, um, like really late for some reason, you don't need to make those up, but, um, yeah, they made us make up all those days. Um, so yeah, it was just like you say nothing, no unexpected things. And that was about as, that was the craziest sort of spring I've ever had when I had planned a bunch of, uh, PD stuff at the very end of the school year. And, uh, so hopefully we don't get that, or maybe we get those crazy snow days when you're like out in Boston, like, you know, it's a freak April snowstorm and doesn't affect you cause you're, you know, in Boston. That could happen, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think we're going to get to having talking about uh, your presentation in Boston, um, which is out by me. Um, and uh, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But uh, let's start with uh, the question I'd like to start with everybody, which is, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? I was from a family of scientists. Mm -hmm. um, my parents, or my mom was a cell biologist, um, went to, like, we'd go to her work after if she didn't have time to take us home yet and I'd learn how to pipette and I'd try really hard to read the publications uh, on the benches and everything. But, so in that sense, I always grew up with the that sense of belonging in science and the curiosity there. And I didn't think that I'd want to be a, a teacher because in high school, when I was I was also starting to come out as a transgender in high school, mm -hmm. I really felt that um, my best shot at a career is probably to do something with as little interaction with people as possible, because right. I don't want to deal with people and they can be discriminatory and, and hard to work with. Then when I finished high school, I, I thought about being a teacher, and the thought occurred to me because I... I thought I'd like working in a way that I was teaching science to other people or talking about science. And it didn't appeal much to me to go do any like uh, medical or academia route because I wanted to be independent financially a lot sooner. So mm -hmm. I kind of went through that pathway. And where I grew up and went to college in Canada, you, you, you can become financially independent teaching a lot faster you need a four-year degree and then a one to two-year teacher certification so I was um, one of I was the only person in my program my science program in college that 
wanted to do that. And after I completed the teacher preparation program, I this was not unexpected, but there were a few, very few opportunities to get teaching jobs in Canada, kind of because of because of the rate at which they're sort of buying new teachers, as well as the low rate of retirement. Mm. So luckily I was a dual citizen. Um, I was born in Massachusetts actually, and while my mom was a grad student at UMass, so moved back to the States, uh, went to Denver for no particular reason, but was offered a job here. And I've been teaching in Denver for, this is the fifth year. Oh, wow. So it's funny, like lots of little connections, uh, UMass grad myself. So um, <laughs> uh, big, big fan of UMass. Um, so yeah, and I, it sounds like the system in Canada is actually, I would say, very similar to the US. I mean, do your undergraduate degree, one to two years, uh, you know, master's degree and or certificate program, depending on what state you're in, um, and then the classroom. And you're right, if you go the academia route um, or medical route, you're talking about, you know, anywhere from you know, two or three on the short side, but realistically, it's probably anywhere from like five to seven years more of education along with, you know, loans and or low pay as a grad student and uh, becoming financially independent is definitely put off um, a lot longer mm-hmm. if you do either of those routes. So, um, so uh, I, I'm curious about the culture shock of like... I, you know, I just uh, just spoke to uh, Christian Moore, who's in Spain, and so like I don't I don't think of the U.S. and Canada as being very different, but I do I am aware that the education systems are different. Are, have there been any transitions for you that you've learned about the difference between the two systems? Has there been any like learning curve for you uh, about coming from Canada and coming to the U.S. schools? I think there has been a learning curve. Probably none of it has been too visible since I'm also, I was also a new educator. Um, so no one ever like pointed out anything big to me, but well, the things that people did point out was like, here they say, we're going to take the test. Whereas in Canada, um, they say, you're going to write the test. So I was saying, you're going to write the test. And that must've sounded kind of weird. Um, huh. and other than that, the, the practice of teaching in the United States seems a lot more built out in terms of structure. People have written best-selling books about how to structure your classroom or um, how to manage the classroom. And those were some of the first things that we were shown as new teachers. Um, Teach Like a Champion. There's another book, Tools of Teaching. And some of those structures, I ended up deciding were really good and keep doing them. Like when my students come into class, there's always a do now something we start with and that maximizes our time but I'd never heard that in in any terminology in Canada or anyone really pushed the idea of okay we got to use every minute of your students class time and maybe I would have if I had been in the system for longer uh, but none of my teachers growing up in Toronto did that it, mm-hmm. it was a little bit because they're not kind of in, in the shadow of no child left behind or anything there felt like a less of an urgency for that. There are other priorities for sure, um, and a lot of priorities in common. But in Canada, um, the practice of teaching hadn't been uh, reduced to uh, a set of best practices, like actual practical best practices. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if I, I think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um. <laughs> it's something that works for Canada. Um, if you yeah. look at their equivalent of their standardized tests, a lot more students are proficient on them. I don't know if the, the test is easier or the test is different, but um, in Colorado, like 10 to 30% of our students are proficient on the state tests. And in Canada, it's students on the academic track, so like the highest track mm -hmm. students, 80% are proficient, and even students on the applied track, which is the one below that, 50% are proficient. So that's way above what's happening in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I've had some conversations with folks about the concept of, of best practices, and I don't mean to uh, like trash or disparage them, because I think, um, I think anytime you can gain insight as to how another teacher approaches their classroom, I think there's enormous value in that. Um, but I view them as a, like personally something that I like to listen to and like see what they do and then uh, figure out what of that melds with how like my personality works and what will work for my students in the place that they are. Because I think that's sort of the magic of teaching, which is the blend of who you are as an individual the the needs of the you know population of kids who are in front of you um and then finding a collection of uh of of cultural practices for that group that help them sort of get excited and 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 access the the work um i i really like the the phrase uh have students write the test as opposed to take the test because i like it how it active it is <laughs> um <laughs> that's the thing that you said at the beginning and it's it's kept in my head because i think i just like the concept of students doing something active um, as opposed to taking which feels very passive yeah yeah well it's so. it's gone from my vocabulary now I, I think you should bring it back. Um, <laughs> like, I think I might start doing that myself. I <laughs> may as I make the note. Um, uh, that's that's something that I almost want to, I, I, I think I'm going to talk to my students about that. <laughs> yeah, it does sound a little different now that you mention it. Yeah. I, well, I just, I like the fact that it's like, the, again, active, like students actively doing something um, as opposed to like the test being something imposed on them. Um, I like the fact that they're the ones that are the creators. Um, the, the, that language really speaks to me and who I am. Um, and it sounds like when you're taking a test that, well, your result is predetermined. You just need to take the test. Yeah. As opposed to you being the creator of it. So, um, yeah. That's a, it's a very little interesting language thing that it just struck me. Um, so, yeah, maybe I'll maybe we'll start working on figuring out how to change that. I, is, I am definitely an old dog. I've uh, been doing things a long time, and I keep catching myself saying things, and I was like, oh, no, I'm going to work on changing my verbiage on that. Um, but uh, sometimes it's it's hard to break those habits, but that's one I might I might be able to incorporate. <laughs> All right, well, let's, uh, let's transition. One of the, I think, first things I saw of you ever post online was your interest in being an astronaut. So you had several posts in, in a variety of different places where you were trying to get involved in this contest. And so I'm curious, how long has it been a dream of yours to be an astronaut? And like, what was it like to participate in the out astronaut contest? And sort of where is the status of that contest right now? Well, I started thinking about becoming an astronaut um, a little over two years ago. And it was the third year that I was teaching. And I finally felt like I was doing an okay job. And kind of stable at it. And I woke up one morning 
it was the first day before needing to go to that first PD in January before students come back. And mm -hmm. I saw on Reddit, on the teacher subreddit there, that somebody mentioned, well, if you're looking for careers to transition to after teaching, then you should know that the FBI accepts teaching experience as qualifying experience years. And then someone replied to that comment saying, so does NASA. Um, the requirements for being an astronaut candidate in NASA are actually surprisingly broad and general. And under the work experience category, it needs to be something in uh, STEM or teaching. And I thought that was kind of cool. And I, I stayed in bed for a few minutes thinking about it. And I thought that that's something that I really want to do. And I had an interest in space when I was younger. Um, I think in, in the 90s, that was like a pretty popular kid interest, uh, mm -hmm. space and the planets. And I don't think I ever said I wanted to be an astronaut. And when I was uh, an adolescent, I don't think I would have ever thought that or verbalized that because my expectations for myself as a young trans person were so, they were based around um, surviving and mm. b being a stable adult in, in any way. And I wouldn't have thought about something so that requires so much confidence and that is so, uh, I guess, highly regarded. Uh, so that was kind of became my New Year's resolution. I was going to find out as much as I could about how to become an astronaut. And the answer is um, the astronaut pipeline is very small right now. Probably in the next 15 or 20 years, it's really going to open up. And mm. currently, the way to be competitive is to you want to have a PhD in a STEM field. You want to have uh, experience in the industry, working with NASA, one of the companies that they work with, and know a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> So starting out, I didn't have any of those because I don't know a lot of people that work in space. Um, I don't think I want to go for a PhD mm -hmm. right now. I've been trying to figure out if I were to do that, what that would look like. Um, last summer was the Out Astronaut Contest, and that was the first uh, contest they had. They put together uh, like a social media voting contest and they were received um, a grant or a donation from this institute that provides a citizen science astronaut training so it's this is not affiliated with NASA but they have a facility and a program that they run for I think it's typically undergraduate graduate students and members of their own team. It's called Project Possum. And what they do is take people through the basics of spaceflight training. And they plan and conduct experiments on, say, uh, weather, uh, not weather balloons, but uh, balloon flights, as well as suborbital flights, uh, rockets. And so, I was a contestant in their contest. It was this summer. I, was, I wasn't I was teaching. I was very excited to be having this new thing on my mind 
all the time. <laughs> I designed this experiment about the viability of 3D printing materials in space applications. And that's something that it was inspired by something I've been doing with my students. I created a couple of 3D printed um, aids for biology modeling. Mm -hmm. And the contest was a cool experience because I basically what I was learning the whole time was how to market on social media, how to reach people on social media. Because certainly this is something that a lot of people can get excited about. A lot of communities uh, will be excited that there is a, a transgender man who's also a, a teacher uh, who is going for this contest. And so mm -hmm. I got a lot of votes. It was very exciting. I got the um, local newspapers, like online publications on Facebook. And that was exciting. Um, in the end, I was a finalist. I talked to the folks uh, on the selection committee a few times. They gave the feedback that I was a strong candidate, although I was not chosen for the um, to be the winner that year. And, mm. and the feedback was that I should get more experience with planning experiments in space applications, so like balloon flights or uh, anything else that goes into space. And so that's that's not a impossible thing for me to do, but I've been uh, asking around here in Denver and it's been difficult to find an in to do that while not being a grad student in the area of space applications. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's something I'm going to continue to work on. It's definitely something that um, I now realize as a teacher, sometimes you are limited in what you can do just in terms of the timing of your job. Like okay. there's very few um, commitments that I could make that are pretty regular outside of my teaching schedule. And this year I actually have a pretty good schedule because I have Wednesdays off and I can fit in a lot of meetings related to like the Trans Educators Network or the Gender Inclusive Biology Project then. But um, that makes it difficult. Yeah, I, a couple of different things came up as you were bringing bringing that up. That that I, my brain was going in different directions. One was that sort of idea of like a teacher engaging in like social media, like sort of branding. Like you kind of got into the space of like what it's like to be your own brand and how to like sell your brand online, uh, which mm -hmm. is I think is something that I know from a generational standpoint is something that when I talk to my colleagues, they just can't even wrap their heads around it as a thing. But I do think that it's a very practical skill for you to have as an educator, because I, I do think that there's value in that. And as you move forward and try to get those other opportunities, if you have an online brand, the you're more likely to be able to make those kind of connections uh, with people because they're going to gonna do that. And again, you had a lot of votes, so you definitely were able very successful at that branding component. It was very helpful to get that experience. I don't think I would have been able to create the connections that I have and um, the partnerships that I have with the Colorado Trans Educators or for Gender Inclusive Biology without the kind of astronaut contest experience that, uh, that I got over the summer. So it was timed pretty well there. And then the other thing that came up, and I, you know, you alluded to in some of your earlier answers about, you know, 
um, the vision that you had for yourself um, as somebody who was going to transition, you know, and, and having that idea um, when you were young, and I think you used the phrase that you were just like hoping to survive, the idea of, of what it would be like to be who you are today and what the world would be like for you. Um, how was that experience of, of being in that out astronaut contest? I'm, I'm not like foolish enough to not think that you didn't get um, any negative commentary in that pursuit, but was there enough positive commentary, enough positive support? Uh, were you able to, how did you feel about that? Was it, were you able to get positive feedback from the community and from um, people who you never knew before uh, to help you sort of individually and in how you felt about yourself? Yeah, I think that was a big part of the impact on me, seeing that you can go out and uh, contact all these people and ask for your story to be disseminated, and a lot of them will do it. And when they do it, there's even positive feedback about that. And there's sometimes people reaching out, asking if they can share it in some other forum and create even more visibility for that. Um, there's a there's a reporter for a pretty conservative Colorado news outlet called The Gazette that interviewed me and she I I knew her before when she was doing a story about trans educators and when I realized that okay, all these uh, people in kind of non-metropolitan conservative Colorado are going to see this um, some of them are going to say negative things on Facebook but it doesn't really matter because they can't downvote me in the contest or anything. Um, but what's going to happen is that trans people and allies in those areas are going to see that anyway. They might be the minority voice there, but they're going to they're gonna remember that. And one of the trans people that saw that talked to me on Facebook. And it almost made me think that that's more important than anything, that to be reaching an audience that has mixed responses mm. instead of just like an echo chamber. Um, and there were a lot of very, very uh, supportive echo chambers like on transgender subreddits or on Facebook groups for the LGBTQ community. And they would say, that's great. I really hope you make it. And, and that was cool too. Um, so that for me, psychologically, the positive feedback always outweighed negative. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing that you had mentioned sort of as, you know, not viewing yourself as going into education, you know, knowing your identity at a young age. And I think one of the big things that we always talk about, um, you know, and I'm going to speak for myself as, you know, the cisgendered middle-aged white man that I am, um, who has very few barriers in there. Um, but I everybody who sits in front of me in my classroom is not the same. They represent um, a variety of different identities. And one of the questions I often ask myself is, am I providing opportunities for students to see themselves as adults? Like, do they see, um, you know, for me, I have a lot of um, students of Indian descent or of Chinese descent. Are they seeing, you know, am I just having them go to white male scientists labs or are they going to see labs of people where they can see themselves either as grad students or as the PI or working towards that? Are they able to see 
the identity who who they think they're going to be down the line um, filling these positions in STEM. And that's that is something that I always kind of turn in my head. And you are doing that for that next generation. You are providing that opportunity for people who are processing their identity to now see, oh, here's a transgender man who is doing this thing, is out, is in the newspaper. I, I can identify as that. And um, it provides you as a, a role model that, that you may not have had, and I, I'm guessing you did not have um, when you were growing up. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. <laughs> Since I'm in schools every day, I get to, like, it's one thing for you to have a, a guest speaker or a, a trip to someone's lab and you see diverse scientists or to see a video of them, but I'm kind of in front of them all the time, whether they like it or not, and doing normal, like, commonplace things and doing hopefully some things that stand out. But it it's a consistent positive reminder. I think that a student can take away a trans person is a regular person that um, has all the varied qualities of any person. And it's not so weirder. It's not something that we need to fixate on. The fact that they are transgender, other than getting to know them as a whole person. And I get to do that as a teacher. Yeah, you get to be like mundane and boring. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that I'm sure there are students who are able to do that. That's what I think of for you know, like your average student who gets like bored in class. You know, that <laughs> they could they can be mundane. You can be just as mundane and boring as uh, any teacher. <laughs> yeah, there's not a pressure to make like the perfect impression. I'm gonna yeah. be here for this whole semester. Yeah, I, and I do think that as you brought up, like sometimes having the the one-off visit or the guest speaker that there there is a performative like nature to that and so that having represent representation being consistent and like a true member of the community and not like oh here is an example of a person who identifies this way or is from this community like to me i always feel that there's a, a tokenism to that as opposed to people who work and are just ingrained into part of your community i feel like that has much more staying power the way you described it yeah for sure. All right. Well, I'm uh, I'm going to flip questions on you because I think we've naturally sort of gotten into the 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 talk that you're going to do at NSTA, NSTA in Boston. So um, on Friday, April third, uh, you're going to be coming back to Massachusetts. Um, and I have it. I looked into the catalog and saw that um, at 9:30 a.m. on that Friday, you're going to be co-presenting a session um, at NSTA Boston called uh, "Growing a Gender Inclusive Biology Curriculum." Um, and uh, you've posted a lot of things out, and I put up some of your websites, and you definitely have some stuff there. But um, what are you hoping that participants are going to get out of this one-hour session if they if they come to that session at NSTA? The purpose of the session at NSTA is to equip science teachers with the knowledge, the mindset, and the practical resources, lesson resources, to start to adapt their curriculum, uh, mostly in regards to teaching biology and to be able to teach about any topic that includes gender and sex. So genetics, reproduction, inheritance, evolution. We want teachers that visit the session to be able to adapt their curriculum to have a more complete and accurate portrayal of gender and sex. And so what that might mean is 
thinking about the way that you talk about reproduction, are you saying um, like when a man and a woman um, have a baby, we each get twenty three. We each give twenty three chromosomes. It's putting a, a lot of implicit meaning into that. When you have a baby, that's saying everybody uh, reproduces sexually like this. That's saying that if you're not um, donating 23 chromosomes uh, in the form of an egg and a sperm, that is not reproduction and that's not focus. And so it's about, um, sometimes it's very minor changes in language, like instead of saying men make sperm and women make eggs and using that all throughout your unit, that's easily changed to uh, people with testes make sperm. And that's mm -hmm. not only more precise language, but you can know that it's not giving, it's not ascribing unnecessary gender and sex to uh, process of reproduction. And so this, one, this is going to be directly heard by your LGBTQ students. You have mm -hmm. trans students in your class. Um, based on how many of them exist in the country, you're not going to get through a year without teaching one, whether you know it or not. And for most of these students, they're not out to all their teachers. So we need to operate as if there are trans students in every classroom. And they'll hear that and they'll they'll realize oh that has been phrased in a way that includes me. And that has been phrased in a way that's not gonna alienate me or alienate me or trigger me in any way. Um, so that's the benefit to students in the LGBTQ community, but also for all our students, they're going to benefit from learning a more complete and accurate form of biology. There are a lot of even textbooks that don't get this right. They fail to mention that there are people that don't have XX or XY chromosomes um, and that these fall under the umbrella of intersex traits. They fail to distinguish between social idea of a family and uh, biologically related uh, parents and children. And that does a disservice to all students that are gonna need to grow up and live in the modern world and not have that language to reconcile what they learn in science class and what they're learning in the rest of their lives. Yeah, oh, there's a lot, I mean, so much to unpack in there and I think um, you know, I think that the last thing that you said in terms of the, you know, again, uh, my, my background, who I am as a person, you know, um, I can, to a certain extent, empathize with um, the fact that somebody has a different experience from me, but I also can know exactly what my experience was. And using the phrases like cis and trans, like in terms of, uh, you know, partners like if if you were to talk about that and to not put a trans on in front of a, an individual's name um so trans male versus a cis male if you just say trans male versus male and you put those two things out there it seems like oh we need a modifier on one person but not on the other um and for me like when i start to think about that for myself there is an othering when you do that <laughs> and i wonder about what you're just saying you know people with testes people with ovaries as opposed to male or female, or even maybe the phrasing like identifies as male or identifies as female. I'm I'm still turning these ideas around in my head for 
um, what it was like for me as a student and what my reaction would have been had I heard a more inclusive language when I was taught biology. I think uh, the identifies language is, that's useful in a social setting. Mm-hmm. However, it's not the best way to approach the things you'll talk about in biology. So for example, if we're teaching about, let's say, sexual reproduction, we say there there's two gametes, there's egg and sperm, um, that are, at least in uh, humans and other familiar species, they're produced by two individuals. Um, we can call them like the sperm creator, the egg creator, or the mm-hmm. parent with testes, the parent with ovaries. Um, and it, it may seem easier or more natural to say, well, it's the mother and the father, and then to tack on some exceptions. Well, okay, the exception would be like, if someone's parent identifies as transgender, they might have two biological parents that are both identifying as mothers. Um, and that's not useful, I think, in a biological context. Mm. What you, What is most useful is to be precise about what matters. So in this conversation about reproduction, what matters is producing egg sperm. And so we'll go by that language. Um, my collaborator, Lewis, has students come up with the terms for these um, biological parents. Sometimes the students have come up with, okay, we're going to call them the, the sperm donor, donator and the egg donator, or the uh, gene givers, or the storks, because they're giving the genes to create the offspring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's language that should be consistent. It, it should not require tacking on exceptions like mother and father do. Yeah, yeah, and again, I think that the language that you're talking about, and as I was saying, like, this is this is a interesting time to reframe for somebody like myself who, you know, can look back and say, oh, this is a, this has been a blind spot for me. This has been something I, you know, I've been teaching for over 20 years and I have not been doing. How do I get better at this? And I think sometimes that's daunting. Um, that's, you know, like... Oh, I've been messing this up. I don't want to keep messing this up. How can I? How can I do this better? And um, what I've been telling myself as I've been working on this is that I just want to try to get better um, at all of these aspects. And I know that I wasn't doing it perfectly before. So if I can do it better but not perfect, I'm gonna try to move towards um, being more inclusive just in general. And hopefully, through practice and feedback and questioning. Um, I will get better doing this type of thing. And I hope other educators are, are willing to kind of go on that journey too. Yeah, I think that's a really common place that educators are coming from. When we hear from science educators, they, they've had some awareness that this work exists and that they need to start to examine the way they've been doing things. There have been very few resources at the K-12 level for that. So what my collaborators, Lewis and River, and I have been working on and just launched is the genderinclusivebiology.com. And this is basically a big categorized resource bank for everything to do with teaching about gender in biology. So we have lesson materials, but also like a a really simple two-column chart of instead of this, say this. Um, So... I'll send you that, or I'll open an example here. So, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely drop because I've got this open. Um, 
and I'm looking in your lesson materials from the gender inclusive biology. Um, and we'll definitely put a link to this in the show notes. So you have a like a, a chart that you're saying? Yeah, if you go to teach and learn and go to update your practice. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So instead of men produce sperm or males produce sperm, testes produce sperm. Um, you know, boys and men produce sperm every day. Instead of using that, you can say for those with testicles, sperm cells are produced daily once puberty has begun. So, you know, again, f identifying specific language instead of saying or repeating people with uh, a particular body part, you can say if you have a body part, then your component um, and <laughs> male and female hormones yeah i've always had a problem with that because males and females are, don't have per, completely unique <laughs> hormones but specifically talking about testosterone or estrogen so yeah definitely i will put this link right in the show notes for people because i think this is a a really interesting resource if you're looking for where to uh, maybe a great place to start i would think of yeah i think this is kind of the landing page for most science educators i think and we're still working on making this a bit more streamlined and encompassing more examples but this is it really comes down to a couple of shifts in language that the the practical the precise language versus the gendered language and mm -hmm. kind of the language of imperatives like uh that men have to do this men always do this versus um if and what yeah i it's i wonder how much pushback you get of uh, and you know this is not this is certainly not my own personal opinion but do you do you get pushback from people who are like that this is just being overly politically correct or that you know this like do you get that sort of pushback or um is are you more more or less getting people on board acknowledging that this is a direction we need to go most educators acknowledge that this is important work Mm -hmm. and needed work the place that we've got the most pushback is probably on some facebook groups like uh, science teacher facebook groups and so folks are coming onto these groups wanting to like does anyone have a lesson on um, genetic drift or something or fill a day uh, and here we are posting something kind of heavy um, <laughs> and, and sharing these resources and the responses have been they haven't been really specific so i can't really speak to where they're coming from but they say like either i don't support this or um something vague like that and or, or they just put a, a crying um emoji in the instead of a like they put a a negative face uh, in the yeah. like and generally what we hear is teachers wanting to do this work but really worried that they're administrators their, their school districts will not back them up on this mm. and that's raised a big need for well for more people to hear this and i think in within five years i want to bring forth a bill in my state in colorado to make some form of gender inclusive biology education mandatory in the state so kind of like a couple of states have um passed bills about how inclusive the sex ed curriculum has to be or having to teach lgbtq history across the state uh, this is something that i'd like to make happen for biology and 
I think it really is. It's important. Can't its importance can't be understated. We are teaching diverse students, students that will need to deal with issues and have conversations that we can't even imagine. And moreover, this fits in with this fits in with every requirement in the NGSS about analyzing arguments, about analyzing evidence, and it's never been a better time to have more teachers doing the work of gender-inclusive biology. We are going to need to face the consequences of teaching students an outdated um, a curriculum that doesn't serve them. Um, we're going to see that as they become adults, and we see that even now. And the way to change that is to really teach all students and to not assume that they're going to learn any of this outside of the classroom. Yeah. I hear a lot of students that are uh, in the LGBTQ community saying, we didn't learn any hint of a possibility in biology that gender and sex were different things or that it was possible to be non-binary or intersex. And they tell me that they wish they had learned that because when you don't teach that, you leave it to students to learn as teenagers or even young adults things that are fundamental to their understanding of their own identity and others' identities. Yeah, and the I is one of those reoccurring themes that have come up for me personally the last few years is the idea that like so much of what students are doing in high school is they're developing their identity, like all students. <laughs> and that, mm-hmm. and I don't think it stops when you're done high school. I think you know, in my as as an adult, I'm still discovering my identity. I'm still discovering who I am, and 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 those types of things. But I think the the real big transformative time for students is when they are in uh, when they're in high school and that's like really the first time they come to grips with that so you're right if we're not being inclusive in that language um, it's going to be to their detriment um, in their identity formation um, and also the respect that they provide for those who have identities that are different from them that's so important that's the that's the thing I think of is the, the also the lack of empathy with uh, that somebody might mis mislearn these concepts and as a result they are sort of stunted in their ability to have empathy down the line and on that I'll add that it's become an increasingly common rhetoric in politics to use kind of a misunderstood oversimplified view of biology to justify discriminatory legal action. Uh, Mm. I I think it's weaponized biology that um, lawmakers will will invoke a very simplified understanding that biology says there's two sexes, or biology says you're male or you're female, that's it. And they'll use that to push legislation that limits the rights and the freedoms of gender-diverse people and in some cases even makes it um, difficult for teachers to teach about those identities in any subject. So what I see us doing with gender-inclusive biology targeting educators, we're seeking to reverse this trend and we're seeking to, instead of weaponize biology to oppress, we are taking back biology for education. All right.
I, I like that as a, a nice sentiment, <laughs> taking back biology, um, <laughs> taking it away from people who could misuse it. Uh, all right. Well, before we get uh, into things we're looking forward to, um, I do want to touch briefly upon um, one of the things on your personal website, uh, which is I, not necessarily about gender inclusive biology, although I think there's good representation of um, the, the language correctly. Um, and that is the songs that you have posted up there. Um, so uh, this is one of those little things I learn when I internet stalk people. I always look and see what's out there. Um, and you have all of these uh, songs that are sort of based off of, uh, look like mostly sort of pop things like, you know, Kesha's on here. And I think you have a, a Nelly and a, a Justin Bieber's on there. And uh, you've done these uh, interesting uh, science-based songs in there. I'm, I'm curious a little bit about, you know, what, what led you to start expressing yourself this way? Is this something that predates you being a teacher or is this something that you came up as a teacher to, to sort of solve some problems? I was playing music before I became a teacher. Mm -hmm. Going into the classroom and like singing a song about meiosis to help them remember. Um, my intention was to do something fun that they're gonna remember and that it would be good for me too because i had never performed on my own in front of many people it's something that i was very very nervous about actually especially singing in front of people when i like sang the, the first song in front of students that was definitely the most people i'd ever sang in front of ever <laughs> and i i thought well this is going to be a good opportunity for me to do that because they're counting on me to sing a song, and uh, if I tell them I'm singing a song, then they're expecting that. And it all went well, and some of them even sang along. Some of the songs on the website have been, um, like the lyrics of other songs are rewritten for science content, and so I really enjoy rewriting the lyrics. I think mm -hmm. that's a really fun part, and there's no high expectation for me to be a great singer or anything. It's just for fun. And so I enjoy that and getting ready to pull out the Kesha song again soon for evolution. <laughs> yeah. And I was noticing you've got like, it looks like a, a ukulele, a guitar, you've got a bass, you've got one of them. I think the Kesha song, you're like hitting a drum and playing bass guitar. during it. So, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, guitar and I didn't think it sounded good on ukulele so I decided to um, to play the chords on bass I used to play bass in high school that was I really really enjoyed that for a long time and I've just gotten back into it so I played the chords on bass and I hit the uh, the bass drum with the pedal to keep the beat and I recorded it that way but then when I went to do it for students I had had a guitar by that point so I just did it on the guitar <laughs> yeah and the students are students enjoy this is this like one of those little things that's a nice sort of a uh, a break or they ask you about songs for that you don't have you that you know or in a unit that you don't have a song for or they are making requests or that sort of thing and they definitely look forward to it and uh like if for one class we didn't get to do the song because spent too much time on something else to like remind me of that remember you never did the song for us um <laughs> some of them write it when i asked them to do a reflection at the end of semester mm -hmm. um on like what advice would you give for future students it was um you can expect that mr long plays a lot of songs on guitar <laughs> um 
I would like to do more. Um, they take a little bit of effort, mostly to to get the lyrics right and to practice. Yeah, it is an enjoyable part. <laughs> I am I, as somebody who is a uh, very fledgling musician, somebody who has a guitar. Who I I actually I'm d- wonder how much dust is on my guitar right now um, because I don't think I've picked it up in in a couple of months. Um, I'm always jealous of teachers who do this. Um, one because I I just don't think I have the musical chops. Like I I'm a when I play a lot. I can become a mediocre guitar player, um, and I just don't have stopped playing so much um, over the years. So I always see that. And then also to get to that competency where you're playing well enough that you could sing uh, along with it, plus the creativity coming from the lyrics, I, I, I'm definitely jealous of that. Um, I have thought of challenging my students to come up with the lyrics. Um, oh, yeah, I, yeah. That, that would be a fun assignment. That way, that might be an easy way for you to sort of uh, get in the pipeline some potential some potential new stuff and lowering the work level for you. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad that you saw that page. Um, Never get asked about that. (laughs) I'm a science teacher. I I ask about the things that happen in the classroom. That's, that's the most important thing to me. Um, (laughs) So cool. All right. Well, what are you looking forward to uh, in your classroom in the next few years? We, we did talk a lot about you as uh, somebody who prepared professional development and, and a lot of your goals in there, but let's get back to that classroom. What are you looking forward to with your students in the next few years? Our school is, we're currently undergoing a, a kind of a change in the science curriculum. Next year, Colorado is going to basically adopt the NGSS standards. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's kind of late, uh, but that it's 2020. That's when they're doing it. And I'm looking forward to NGSS alignment supporting a gender-inclusive biology alignment and it, it being kind of just an opportune time to try out new things. And this will be hopefully something that other folks in the science department also do um, because, well, in my department, I am, this is my first year at my school. I have schools last mm-hmm. summer and I'm part of a team, uh, a great team, a very experienced team. And they've all been there at least 10 years and have kind of been doing the same things for as long as they've been there. They've been very welcoming of me and the new things I've done. So, and by welcoming, I mean, I'll do kind of a lot of my own things and mention some of them to them and they'll try out some of my activities. Um, But I'm looking forward to, in the next few years, building out like what it means to be a, what it means to teach science currently at Stanley Lake High School. And we're going to be NGSS aligned. We're IV middle years program aligned and I want to see how these lessons play out to a larger audience. I want to talk to more students. I want to see how other teachers who are starting in much more kind of a a beginner stance for talking about gender um, approach this because I know that they'll need to in some of these units. Also in sex ed, we biology teachers teach sex ed at our school for ninth grade. <laughs> so we know that's going to come up. This will be my first time teaching sex ed <laughs> this year in uh, April, I think. That's uh, interesting. It's um, usually a lot of times goes to the health teachers or the gym teachers in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, so that's where, that's what it, it happens in Massachusetts. 
Yeah, I think it happens in, in a lot of schools in Colorado as well. But yeah. here, if you're taking phys ed, it's a one semester class. And so that might be why they inserted it into biology. Hmm. Be interesting. Yeah, I actually, my first year teaching when I was, you know, just 22 and working on my master's at the time, I actually taught a, I taught one of the sections of health in the school that I taught in, uh, which was, I was very ill-prepared to do that. And being a 22-year-old person in front of 17-year-old people uh, teaching health and sex ed was, uh, it was a, it was an adventure. Um, <laughs> I, I learned about how to be very different from the people who are not that much younger and certainly didn't look that much younger than me, um, how to create that sort of wall of difference between me and them. I, I would say that it was, I, I will never do anything in my career that it was as awkward as teaching um, sex education to 17 year olds. Um, it was an interesting experience as a young teacher. But, I'm not that young anymore, but I still look very young and that definitely impacts the way that that interact with students. I used to try really hard to dress somewhat formal and mm -hmm. try to dodge all the <laughs> comments about how old I must be. Um, but this year I stopped doing that and I kind of dress in a relaxed way. And um, I've come up with a couple of good jokes, if you want to hear them. Um, oh, yeah. About, well, I guess this, this is for anyone listening who is a young-looking teacher, your students are going to ask you how old you are or if you're a student or a teacher or something like that. Yeah. And so here are my um, best comebacks to that. A student asks, how old are you? Or you look so young. And I say, well, I'm actually 62, but thank you. My grandchildren tell me that every time I see them as well, and it's always flattering. <laughs> they, they, they probably have uh, an interesting time with that. <laughs> yeah, there was one year that they actually believed it for a while. It was good. They were using evidence to try to prove me wrong. Like they were trying to catch me off guard on what year I was born or what year I graduated high school, things like that. So that was good of them to do that. But I, I have told the story before that um, my, when I taught in my previous school, um, one of my good friends was uh, was Nigerian um, and he had very he had excellent education. He was probably in like late 20s, early 30s. And he had he had only been teaching for a couple of years, but he had gone to grad school. And when people when kids would ask him how old he was, he would tell them that he was 50 years old. Like no reasonable person would look at him and say he was 50 years old. And they're like, oh, let me see your driver's license. And he's like, my what? And then he'd play dumb, and he's like, I'm an excellent driver. What do you mean I need some sort of permission to drive my car? Um, and they would just, like, go off, and they would – there. But so you could hear him every time – like, in his classroom was across the hall from me. So I would – about a dozen times a year, I would hear that exchange, and it would just be, I would just, like, burst out laughing. And then sometimes the kids would come in, like, do you know how old he is? And I'm like, he says he's 50. <laughs> so, yeah. so I would be of no help whatsoever to them, so <laughs> – but I wasn't, I was, I think I was like 
three, two or three years younger than him at the time. So the concept that he, some kid would believe he was 50, they never really did, but he would have them, he would have them going and it was always an entertaining uh, back and forth. Yeah, because they haven't, they haven't really known the age of, ages of a lot of adults. So no. Is that no. mystery seeking evidence? Well, I- and I would also say, you know, for him, you know, he he was he was very different. I mean, he was this like, you know, big black African man in a you know predominantly white and Hispanic school outside of Boston. Uh, he did not look like anybody else. He spoke with a, a like a British accent because he was you know his schooling was all um, in British schools in Nigeria, and then he came over for his graduate degree in the United States. So he spoke very differently. He looked very different. So they, I think they just couldn't get around who he was and what he was. And I think that there was a mystery to him just in general, because of how different he was from the kids who grew up, you know, just outside of Boston. And he sort of, he was poking fun at that, I think, um, in a very clever way. I appreciated that about him. Yeah. I kind of have a, a double dose of, looking young because well i'm asian and asian people tend to um, look young or at least i find people don't know how to accurately judge our ages sometimes okay uh students especially and i'm a trans man and kind of a running joke in the trans community is that trans men seem to never age and and i noticed that in the fall when there was the seven year facebook photo comparison challenge and i pulled up a photo from that many years ago and i i felt i kind of looked the same yeah i i am i will say um i am also somebody who is uh accused of looking too young um even like the number of times I say that I've been teaching for 24 years and the people are like, you, what now? Like, how long have you been doing it? But, uh, and my wife is the same way. She is just a very young looking person for people who are in our forties. I don't think we look young, but I will tell you when I pull up the seven year challenges, I can see that I don't look the same. (laughs) I can start to see the wrinkles do start showing up around the eyes a little bit and around the mouth and and that sort of thing. Like they start to to creep in a little bit, but it's, it is slow and subtle for me. And you so. can tell our students about telomeres. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also tell them, you know, like, you know, if you treat your body well and, you know, I'm I, I'm still pretty active. I still run very regularly and I, I tend to eat fairly well and I, I take good care of myself and I'm fortunate with my with my genes. And I, I, I you know, like in the in the background of all of those things, both nature and nurture, um, I do kind of expect to live a long time. Like, you know, that's. I, I both by both of them are on my on my side, so it's not that uncommon when you look at uh, where I came from um, and how young my you know grandparents looked <laughs> you know into their yeah. ages. So, all right. Well, before we get to picks the episode, uh, I like to ask, uh, what do you do when you are not teaching and running professional development and <laughs> and that sort of thing? What what do you like to do as your downtime? <laughs> One thing that I have gotten good at making time for and do regularly is playing music I'm in two groups right now one is uh, a big concert band called the mile high freedom band and it's the it's been around for 36 years and it's an lgbtq inclusive concert band here in denver and i play percussion and that's really fun to 
hit things loudly and to <laughs> make interesting sounds. And then the other group is a, just a, a three-piece kind of pop rock band with two other uh, trans men that I'm friends with. And that's been also a fun side thing. And something that we can do that is strictly not to do with work and just for enjoyment. And that's something that I would like to always have time for. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm not surprised that music is there based off of what we pulled off of your website, but that's that's cool. It's, it is nice to get things that are away from the school that you enjoy as well. All right. Before we get to picks of the episode, uh, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. I'm coming into the, the American science curriculum just in the past four or five years, and you've been in the system for a lot longer. I wonder what I could learn from hearing your reflections on how science teaching has changed in the last 20 years. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the simple the simple answer is that, um, you know, the system that I went through as a student and the system I started teaching in really treated biology in particular, but most of the science in general, with, with maybe the exception of physics, uh, most of the sciences were treated as descriptive sciences. So if you took an earth science course or a biology course or even a chemistry course, for the most part, you were being told what was known about those subjects and you really didn't do any exploration or experimentation. I would say that because of the way high school physics is generally fairly mechanics oriented, both as a student and early on in my career, I would say physics was an outlier from the rest of the sciences in that way that, that there was a lot of exploration within physics um, in my you know, academic experience. But otherwise, like, it was just taught as this descriptive content. And as you mentioned with NGSS, um, but also with the changes to uh, the AP curriculum in the last decade, um, it really now is a science where students are actively engaging in the practices of science and doing science. And you still have to know some stuff, but knowing stuff is not the only metric by which we evaluate whether somebody has a, is a good biology student. And now their ability to actually do science to ask questions, to design experiments, to analyze data, to communicate those ideas. Those are now of equal weight to the knowledge base that we're hoping students will like acquire during their time. And so that's been the biggest change. Um, and it's really been happening over the last decade or so that that shift has really come into high gear. Um, but for the more than the first half of my career, I would say that biology was still very heavily a descriptive science. And I'm, I'm very happy about the direction we're going. That's cool. That's kind of consistent with um, kind of what I see in the at my school, the old uh, R drive on the hard drive, the <laughs> test that they've been giving. It's like it's all either you know it or you don't. Yeah. And I'm I'm excited to be moving more officially to NGSS. I I can't believe that Colorado is only now really adopting it, but uh, good that it's happening. Yeah. Well, you're not that far behind. I mean, Massachusetts is, I think we're in the, we're not in the first tier. So like California and Kentucky and Oregon and like one or two other states were like the first two years of it. And like Massachusetts, we adopted the standards, but our test is now just changing for the first time this spring. So like we're, we've been in a slow rollout the last three or four years. So I don't think you're like eons behind <laughs> in terms okay. of 
the adoption. I, I, I would say that I can appreciate the, it feels, I mean, the entirety of your career, you've been watching it. So <laughs> I can appreciate from your standpoint why that feels that way. But like in the arc of my career, like it doesn't, it, from my perspective, I don't look at Colorado going, oh, Colorado, how did you wait those three years? Uh, like, I mean, it's not, it, to me, it's, it's a relative, it's a relative position, but I will say it's, it's a hard, it's also a really hard transition um, because you have a lot of people, like when I look at my building, we have one teacher who has started teaching biology in the last you know five years in there and so i think for her this change isn't big but for most of the biology teachers you're talking about a group of people who've been teaching for a dozen to in most of the cases you know 20 plus years our biology teachers have been teaching you know like for the core of us yeah we have somebody who's been it's been about four years somebody who's been about a dozen years and then everybody else is like 16 plus so like those people have taught, were taught biology as a descriptive science and now are transitioning to this other thing. And it's, it does take a different mindset and it does ch involve changing the way you approach curriculum. Um, and it's, it's messy. Um, and it's, we're not doing it great. And when you've been really good at doing it one way and you worked your whole career to develop all these skills and techniques to about content presentation and that sort of stuff. And now you have to learn about, like turning over your curriculum and letting your kids be active scientists and that, that it's a really hard transition um, that, that not everybody's personality is really well cut out for, I would to be, put it kindly. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. And, My school is kind of similar yeah. with, the, with the teachers that are currently here. Yeah. And I am, and I am a complete outlier in that way. Like, cause I'm somebody who likes to blow my curriculum up every couple of years and I'm, I'm very novel seeking from a teaching standpoint, um, which is got its benefits and its drawbacks you know it's not all perfect but this type of transition is easy for who i am as a teacher like i i can acknowledge that but i see the strain i see good professionals who i work with and i can see the strain that they have doing this so um on what you were saying about physics versus bio and chem it, it just popped in my head that i was realizing that there is a lot bigger of a community of diverse scientists there's kind of a couple movements on twitter um that you've probably seen lgbt stem and uh like scientists of color um, posting hashtags on twitter and it seems like based on what i am hearing from a friend of mine that's at cu boulder there is a lot more of a community in the engineering uh physics and, and tech side of it um a friend who goes to CU Boulder says that um, OSTEM, which is that out in STEM club that they have, mm -hmm. um, they have very few members and very, very, very little from biology and chemistry departments, which shocked me because I thought, well, biology has all this to do with diversity. And uh, I know that like tech is different and it's growing in a different way, but I just wonder where that disparity comes from. Yeah, I... I don't know. I don't know. I think that the one thing that comes to mind and it's sort of just a, it may be unrelated. So I'm, I'm a little even hesitant to say it is that I do feel that biology in particular, which is the one I feel most comfortable talking about, has been coming to reckoning with the built in, you know, both patriarchy and white supremacy of the tenure system that is baked into life science. Like, if you look at 
who are the prestigious scientists in the field of biology, they are predominantly white men of a certain age. And that group of biologists have been in those positions for a very long time. And, you know, through a variety of different ways, some of which are, you know, unfortunate that it's because of, you know, uh, harassment or other issues like that, that, that some of these things have come to light, but also just becoming aware as a community of uh, the access to those positions and how few opportunities there have been for anybody who's not a white man to access those um, is something that we are, I think, as a community of biologists sort of coming to grips with. And so it may be that there's just been a lag in that grouping to catch up with where, you know, the engineers and the physicists are. Maybe the, that that community came to that reckoning a little earlier, um, and we, we still haven't fully flushed that out. That makes sense. Because yeah. maybe, like, the employment structure of, like, uh, engineering and tech careers is, is much different, like you're saying, instead of necessarily tenure. Yeah, and I and I don't I don't know enough about the differences. I can just only report based off of sort of my, you know, what I what I see in terms of it. But you know, you think back to those pictures of the famous chemists chemists and physicists from the, you know, uh, the the turn of the century back when they were working on the atom bomb. It was a bunch of white men in those chemistry and physics rooms. It wasn't a diverse population there. So I think there has been a time when that population came to a reckoning about you know, diversity and inclusion and that sort of thing. Um, and maybe they're just, again, a little ahead of that curve. Um, whereas in biology, we just haven't gotten there yet. I appreciate um, your thoughts on that. Yeah. But I do think, you know, if you, if you listen to, you know, scientists and talking about, you know, the, the panels that are happening at conferences and that sort of thing that, you know, there have been people who are like, um, you know, and, both men and women who are like, well, I've noticed that you have this panel speaking and there are no women represented in this speaking you know, panel. Um, I'm not going to come to your conference and be part of your panel if there are no way, or why don't you take my position and put a woman, woman on this panel? Or why do we only have one woman on this panel? Like that's a conversation that's been of the last two or three years that's been going on in biology academia. Um, and so if we're looking at greater inclusivity we're still fighting patriarchy in biology that mm -hmm. opening the eyes to uh you know uh racial and gender uh diversity beyond just the straight patriarchy as it is i i think that that's probably where we are where we are um, i would say from a fortune standpoint i do think that that is a conversation that's being had and um, i'm hoping that five to ten years from now uh we will be in a place where you will notice that out in stem has good biology representation as well Hope so too. Yeah. All right. We have reached picks of the episode. Um, so Sam, what is your pick of the episode? My pick is a a very large spreadsheet that reports instances of queer species in Evolution's Rainbow, which is a book by biologist Joan Roughgarden. So the the database has about two hundred. Uh, groups of organisms or individual species that show um, some example of asexual, uh, gay, lesbian, transgender, intersex, and hermaphrodite in their behavior or physiology. And I will say that these are these are examples that are described in the book. The purpose of the book is to show 
evolution's rainbow to show how much diversity there is that uh, hasn't been talked about. Kind of, um, one might go through high school and college biology education having very little idea of any of these and being taught this kind of easy narrative. Well, all, all the species are like humans. It's there's male and female. The males are usually bigger and compete for the females. And I think a lot of science teachers go to that because they think students will be familiar with it and they know it. The teacher knows it. Um, but we have this resource here that uh, gender inclusive biology collaborator Reversa put together that is there for teachers if they want to change it up. Wow, and there's some really interesting. <laughs> like, I, as I'm going through the the spreadsheet, um, there's some in, there's some interesting comments about what goes on in here. So, trying to get to the top, back to the top of the spreadsheet, where they're they're talking about the the different type of organism, the names, um, and they give scientific names when possible, um, and sometimes it's just the the common name, and then some of the details that are provided, and then also sort of how to break these up by topic. Um, so some of these are individuals that have only one sex in them, you know, all the species are female, um, that sort of thing. And then there's a couple of other interesting ones. There's one that has like question marks next to it. There's a, a mammal, there's a primate that doesn't have any comments underneath its role, um, there. So yeah, very interesting for, you know, again, diversity. I think this is a great example of a spreadsheet that will help you with diversity and some of the details, um. And I think that book seems like something I will want to add into my, my show notes as well. Oh, yeah. I can send you well, the information in the book itself. Um, yeah. Joan Roughgarden, she's probably been read by all anyone taking high school, I mean, college biology classes. But uh, she transitioned. She's a trans woman. Uh, she transitioned while working in academia and came out with this book, I think, about 20, 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, there was an updated version, looks like, in 2013. Evolution's Rainbow 2013 is the publication I'm seeing on this. So this may be an updated version of it um, and from University of California Press. So I will put a link to that in show notes as well. All right. Well, I'm going to go a slightly different direction with my pick of the episode. And um, I'm going to put down something that's called the Rosalind Project. And the Rosalind Project is, or specifically, it's a platform for learning bioinformatics and programming through problem solving. So one of the things that I have been like grappling with, struggling with, uh, becoming aware of is that fundamentally data science is a big part of what biology is going to look, currently looks like in the academic level above high school and is going to be a huge part of the jobs that anybody who goes into biology has to be able to grapple with. And part of that is programming. And I, I told the story a few different times. I don't know how many times I've told it on the show, but I went to a, a, a workshop at MIT a couple summers ago with their biology department. And it was really about sort of intro to programming and how sort of programming overlaps with biology and specifically with neuroscience. And one of the neuroscience speakers who came and talked to us uh, basically said that she does not take grad students who who were biologists as undergrads, she would take um, people who were computer science, people who could program, because she thought she could teach them all the biology they needed to know in a semester, but she couldn't teach all of the biologists all the programming she needed them to be able to do in a semester. And so if you were a programmer who wanted to get a 
you know, a master's degree or a PhD at MIT in biology, she would, you could get into this neuroscience lab. But if you were a biologist who wanted to get into this neuroscience lab, if you didn't know how to program, she wasn't going to take you. And that's something that's always stuck with me. So this Rosalind project is a way for you to basically go through and create an account and then solve some problems trying to use Python. So it's sort of like a problem solving type game to learn some of the bioinformatics and programming tools. And I have only taken a cursory look at it, but it seems like it, if you can dedicate the time to it, you can pick up a lot of things with this in terms of learning how to do some basic programming. Um, I think if you don't know any programming at all, this is probably not the place to start, but if you know some basic tenets of programming, this is probably a pretty cool way of finding some applications in biology. Well, it actually looks like there's a, a Python village for people that don't know any programming. Yeah. Of course, there's probably other ways to learn your first programming. I really want to figure out if this is ap applicable within a regular biology semester, because I would love to do something like this. I know most of my students don't take programming. They're not taking computer science, and that's probably not a good thing, uh, yeah. as you say. Um, there are so many w ways to learn beginner coding. Yeah, and I think that for me, the the issue is I think I need to, and this is true for everything I teach, I need to go pretty deep and learn a lot about sort of the context of it, and then I'm going to find some entry-level places for my kids to apply. And I, I guarantee you that when I do this, some of my students will already know way more than I do about this, because for some of them, it's their hobby. Um, but um, they're not, those are the kids I'm not worried about. It's the kid who's bright, but doesn't view themselves as being able to do any programming at all. I want them to be able to say, oh, I could do this simple task in computer programming. So if I was to explore this more, I might be able to learn this. So that's my goal. Thanks for sharing this. All right. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Um, let me give my show credits. Um, you can subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Uh, you can support my episodes by going to patreon.com slash lots. I also post uh, early episodes for my Patreons up there, and I also post my show notes there as well. Uh, show notes can also be found on lifeoftheschool.org. Music you hear on this and every episode is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. You can also follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can follow Sam on Twitter at SamLong713. So thank you all for joining me, and I will talk to you. So this is a, another first for Life of the School. I'm going to add a little postscript onto this uh, conversation that, that Sam and I had because Sam and I recorded uh, back in February um, and at the time, uh, the world was a very different place. And so um, in the last you know week and a half, we've had uh, lots of cancellations, including the cancellation of the NSTA conference, um, as well as school closure. So I wanted to bring Sam back on to talk a little bit about what's going on with his school, maybe share what's going on with my school and, and just sort of update things a little bit. So Sam, thanks for joining me again. Yeah, I'm glad to join you. It's been a fast couple of weeks. Yeah, definitely. An interesting last last couple of days in particular yeah
Um, so I can share yeah, what's been going on in my school. As it, it seems kind of typical, but in Colorado, it kind of started um, a week ago. So the first week of March that the governor um, made several announcements. First, the district canceled trips out of state and they canceled all trips. And then they started reaching out to people that knew about online learning. And so we knew rumblings that that was going to happen at some point. And it happened last Thursday. We were mm. told that the following week would be remote learning. And since we're a one-to-one -one Chromebook school, for most students, that means they're going to receive some sort of instruction and assessment online. Um, but on Friday, we sent home textbooks and uh, chapter lists for students that might not have internet online. And today, I'm putting together what will be our first lessons for Tuesday. Wow. And so you said you have you have one week of uh, school and then you go into your spring break. So so this one week break really is a, a two week break. Um, definitely uh, with sort of unknown circumstances after that. Yeah, it's not known what's happening after that. My district, which is Jeffco Public Schools is doing remote learning. So every staff is expected to do work in some way and every student is expected to and do work during that week, whereas other districts around us have called a, an extended spring break of mm -hmm. two, three, or more weeks. So I, I think it's good that the district is trying this. We know that um, learning won't happen if we don't attempt some sort of uh, remote instruction. But there are a lot of um, unaddressed logistical factors where students are going to be able to get food if they rely on free and reduced lunch. Um, that was determined after the announcement that would go to remote learning. Um, <clears throat> what would be all our specific responsibilities is still unfolding, and it's all very new. But I'm, I'm mostly glad that I have Google Classroom and that I have been using some of these tools before so that I don't have to be learning it now. And I don't know if my students will log on on Tuesday when we're supposed to start, but I know I have the means of communicating with their families, and I think I can deliver a a somewhat effective set of lessons, picking like the essential things, uh, picking what can be learned through that platform easily. Yeah. Um, and so your timeline and my timeline are remarkably similar. Um, Massachusetts um, was ahead in terms of case numbers. Uh, we had an event uh, at Biogen um, that was uh, a sort of a, a workshop or a conference or something like that. And there were over 70 cases that, that spawned from uh, that meeting that was uh, in Cambridge about a week and a half ago. And then I, at the beginning of the week, um, I and my colleague canceled our job shadowing project. Uh, we sent 125 students out to various like universities and biotech companies and that sort of stuff. And I could see the writing on the wall that places were closing and, and that wasn't going to be viable this year. And we were starting to have like the inkling that we were going to lose a couple of our big sites that we send people to. And so I decided that we would cancel that project in there. And that was on Monday night. Um, I sent out emails Tuesday 
on Wednesday, our district announced that we were going to have a half day Friday. And then on Thursday, they turned that into a full day of PD on Friday. So we had the day on Friday to come in and, and talk to our colleagues and sort of figure out what our plan would be. And uh, we have one official week off, um, but there's sort of tentative plans of what happens if they go longer than that. And um, we are not supposed to really think in terms of assessment this week. And that's for a few different reasons, um, but we do want to have sort of schedule and normalcy and, and connection with students to be maintained. And sort of that's sort of the focus for our first week is, is you know, make sure you check in with your kids um, and sort of evaluate what is plausible sort of moving forward. Uh, we, we have, uh, you know, students who are going to have access issues. Uh, we have families that are going to need um, food assistance and that sort of thing. And so I think this week they said, let's not worry about assessment. Let's do some light instruction, some light connection and evaluating sort of where we are in the world. And then beyond that, we will we'll just continue to be flexible moving forward. But um, as I was saying, when I was uh, editing the the episode and I was we were complaining about snow days, or at least I was complaining about snow days and we were talking about the NSTA conference, I want to make sure I got you back on so that you could give a, a more updated uh, state status of what's going on in your school and I and also so I could share mine. Yeah, that's well. I guess we're embarking on this all at the same time. Then I, I've heard tons of conversations on like the biology teachers Facebook group about exactly what to do and what are our situations. But it looks like it's inevitable that most schools will be facing a similar situation now. Yeah. Um, now I don't know what's going to be the outcome of our doing this online instruction. <laughs> I know that we're not going to have as predictable of student outcomes. But I feel it's essential that we do that instead of doing nothing or saying, well, we weren't ready for this. Um, we can't teach and <laughs> just as, a, as professionals. I acknowledge it's not the most important thing in anybody's life right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think for me, um, you know, and I, I'm going to stress this when I talk to my kids for the first time tomorrow is um, also for their their sort of well-being. Um, I can be an adult who gets together with them and say, hey, uh, self-care, uh, make sure you're taking care of yourself a little bit and, you know, make sure that you've got like some side projects that aren't like, you know, dwelling on news and and wallowing and stuff that's negative. Um, I actually remarked to my wife, I I. I, we had a Saturday and I, I actually had a really great Saturday. Like I went on a trail run, uh, you know, baked some bread, which I, you know, it's one of those things about me. I made a soup. We played games as a family. I did some reading. Like I did a lot of little things that I like to do. And then my head hit the pillow and I had like maybe the best night of sleep I've had in, you know, weeks. And I felt like the week leading in, you could sort of feel the closure was coming and I was, I was really struggled with my sleeping and I, I just, I felt like I had a terrible week of not really taking great care of myself leading into the closure because I was stressed and I, I didn't realize I was doing that, but like yesterday I actually had a good day and, and I was like, oh yeah, you kind of have to take care of yourself and that's going to be my message to my kids going forward. That's a good plan. I just wanted to, I, not to add a question to my uh, like warm up survey about how are you doing? Tell me one thing you've enjoyed lately. Yeah. I'm I'm even toying with the idea of like putting together a list of positive distractions. <laughs> like, you know, some free books online and some like the places to get like exercise things online and like, you know, those type of things. Um, or I'm just gonna talk to my kids and say, Hey, 
you know, there, there are these things out there and, and let me know if you want help finding those things. But, um, yeah, so, well, thanks again for joining me, Sam. I, it's going to be an interesting little tack on that I'll throw on this, uh, this episode. And again, we're recording this, um, on Sunday, I'm posting this up on Sunday night. So, uh, this will probably feel like weird and dated and all the rules will have changed three days from now, but, um, <laughs> uh, that's sort of what's been going on, but I, I definitely wanted to have a chance for you to talk about, um, sort of what was going on contemporary with you. Um, and also I wanted to share something a little bit contemporary with me. So thanks, uh, and, uh, take care of yourself, man. Good to hear from you. Thanks for talking.